Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you're listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 149, Exploring the Sefer Harazim. In episode 146, we spoke with Gideon Bohack about a number of fascinating aspects of late antique Jewish magical practice. We then took a journey into the nitty-gritty of the Aramaic incantation bowls, and then visited the temple of Isis Magna Mater at Trier and the temple of Minerva Sulis at Bath for some comparative data on the binding practices associated with polytheist goddess cults in the Roman period. But now we're returning to our Jewish material in the form of the earliest proper book of Jewish magic known to us. The Sefer HaRazim, or Book of Mysteries, is a longish work composed in a learned Hebrew typical of the Midrashic canon. We're looking at an accomplished scribe or a rabbi even, or a learned person from the Jewish community as the author stroke compiler of this text. The book's composed of a short introduction, laying out the esoteric chain of transmission by which the book came down to us, and then divided into seven firmaments, or heavenly realms. The first six of these firmaments are populated by angels, which can be adjured by a practitioner to do lots of stuff. And we'll get to what you can make these angels do shortly. But the seventh heaven is God's throne room. And there the text turns from practical rituals of power to a long hymn in praise of the Jewish God, with heaps of quotations and allusions to the Hebrew scriptures. We thus have an overarching textual framework, which is very Jewish, But the contents within that framework are, well, a bit more difficult to nail down, let's say. Now, as Professor Bohack mentioned in our interview, this book isn't really a book. In 1963, Mordechai Margaliot, a scholar of all things Geniza, was working on some fragments from the Cairo Geniza in Oxford, and he found a spell for winning at the racetrack. This rang a bell and then set him delving into a complex web of fragments and less fragmentary texts. And he realized that he was looking at bits and pieces, mostly in Hebrew, but with some Arabic translations and supplemented by a later Latin work that we'll get to at the end of this episode, bits and pieces of what must have been a work like we've just described, an angelological magical text organized according to seven firmaments and containing elaborate lists of angel names, a load of practical ritual recipes that could be accomplished by invoking and adjuring said angels, and topped off with a properly rabbinical final firmament where God's throne room is to be found and where magic no longer works because you cannot make the Hebrew God do anything with magic. He published a reconstructed text based on all this textual sifting as Sefer HaRazim, the Book of Mysteries, in 1966. And while the text has been re-edited since, This is basically the picture we're looking at, a late antique work of Jewish angel magic. Now, Margaliot dated the text to the late 3rd century CE or early 4th, which is nice as it fits our podcast chronology, and it's a lot better than we can do with other Jewish texts of great importance to Western esotericism, such as the Sefer Yetzirah, which just can't really be dated. As for the dating of the Sefer HaRazim, Lots of general attributes of the text make this dating roughly likely, but we do have a couple hard bits of data to go on. At 1, 27 to 28, 
we have a reference to Roman indictions, which we know took place in the year 297 CE. And these give us a probable terminus a quo of that date. Terminus a quo is a fancy way of saying the book couldn't have been written before that date because it refers to stuff which happened then. So it's got to be after the year 297. The other dates have been given, but um, nothing much, nothing too far away from 297. As for where the book is written, educated guesses include Egypt and Palestine, but we don't know. So before we dive into what's in this book, let's set the stage a bit with a little more context. We're talking about a book of angelic magic. Let's just call it that, since our attentive listeners are well aware of the methodological problems with the term magic, and we just want to get on with the good stuff. So this is a book of angelic magic composed by a Jewish author in the late Roman Empire, probably around the turn of the 4th century CE. Now, we say composed, but the recipes, or praxis, to take the fancy technical term, contained in the text the spells, if you will, are clearly compiled rather than composed. We find tons of parallels with spells found in the Greek magical papyri in this text, as well as parallels with the Aramaic incantation bowls. So clearly we are in some kind of common late antique magical culture, which is not strictly Jewish. What our author seems to have done is repackage a load of material from this common magical heritage into an overarching Jewish cosmological framework, which is the structure of the seven heavens that make the structure of the book. As is the way with magical texts, and with the Merkava material, which we might want to call magical or mystical, or just give up trying to figure out what to call it, as with that material, and many of the types of texts as found in the Greek magical papyri, we have a lot of evidence in the Sefer Harazim for borrowing, combining, recombining, and so forth. So when we're looking for a date for this book, we can date the book to late antiquity, but many of the practices outlined will have very long ancestries going back who knows how far into the distant past. To paraphrase Morgan, whose useful English translation of the Sefer Harazim will be featured a lot in this episode, when we date the book, we're not dating the practices outlined in the book. They, a lot of them seem to go way back. Now, that mention I just made of the Merkava tradition is apposite, as it is in the Merkava and Hechelot texts, which we covered way back in episode 53, that we find the kind of worldview or cosmology that typifies the Sefer HaRazim. The firmaments, or heavens, outlined in this book are full of ranks upon ranks of angels, arranged in all manner of interesting ways, with accompanying architecture and whatnot, with overarching themes of palaces of fire, terrifying angelic sights and sounds, and a general vibe, which is very clearly the sort of vibe that the descender to the chariot in the Merkava tradition expects to find when traveling through the heavenly palaces on the way to God's throne room. So the Sefer HaRazim is set in a roughly Hechelot Merkava kind of universe, in other words, but it mostly doesn't require you to make an ascent through the angelic realms it describes. What we're looking at here is a set of earthly practices which depend for their effectiveness on knowledge of the angelological structures of the cosmos. You need to know the angel names, of which there are about 700 in the book, 
and also the different kind of visionary topographies which the angels inhabit in order for these spells to work, but you're not expected or invited to join the angels there. You adjure them to come to you and do stuff for you. And the stuff they are going to do for you all takes place here in the world. Now, the only kind of borderline to this, the only kind of possible exception, is there are a few spells in the fourth firmament where Helios is encountered, the sun god. And these are very reminiscent of aspects of the Mitras liturgy, that's PGM 4, 475 to 824, on which see episode 122 of the podcast. And I reckon, for my money, they seem to come from an ascent magic matrix, which might have been present in earlier forms of these spells, but this is speculative. At any rate, you're going to encounter the sun god in one of two forms, his day form and his night form, and actually kind of look at him, which to me maybe puts us into a cosmic ascent milieu. But there's no reference to that explicitly in the text, so I'm just speculating a little bit. Now, this similarity in worldview with the Hechelot and Merkava traditions was not lost on later compilers of this text. As often, we can learn a lot about an esoteric tradition in situ by looking at what texts are transmitted together. So of the seven main manuscripts available for the reconstruction of Margoliot, so these are medieval manuscripts, some of which are ex- explicitly Kabbalistic medieval manuscript collections, right? So we're not in the late antique period anymore. We're looking at later Jewish compilers who are copying this text and putting it bound up with other texts in book form. Of the main five texts that Margoliot used, most of them are bound together with the Masaket Hechalot, Maase Bereshit and Shir Koma, texts of esoteric exegesis and numerical mystery, which will play a major role, seminal Kabbalistic source material, and which will be discussed in more detail as the podcast progresses. In other words, our text, the Sefer HaRazim, will become very much part of the Kabbalistic tradition in medieval Jewry. The compilers of these medieval Jewish manuscripts thus considered that those interested in the Hechelot material, with descriptions of the heavenly palaces, and I think most interpreters would agree, with some aspect of visionary ascent or practical engagement with the heavenly palaces kind of implied, would also be interested in the esoteric exegesis of the first six days of the creation, as recounted in the book Bereshit, or Genesis, as the Greeks translated it, and with the bizarre numerical mysteries found in the Shior Koma, a text which deals with the vast measurements of God's body. <laughs> People interested in those three subjects will also be interested in the angel magic practices found in the Sefer Harazim. We can conclude thus in a summary way before we get further into the medieval Jewish uh, esoteric tradition, that the medieval Jewish esoteric tradition is loads of fun. But getting back to late antiquity into our book, what is striking about this work is the amount of material it includes, which is obviously of non-Jewish origins. Greek words found in the text are common technical terms also found in the PGM and elsewhere. I mean, we find prayers to Helios, the sun, and invocations both of Hermes and Aphrodite, understood as the spiritual forms of the planets Mercury and Venus. In fact, there's a lot of planetary material preserved in the Sefer Harazim. More on that anon. 
we also have an image that the practitioner is instructed to construct at 2.115 and following. And this is clearly the same image that the rabbis in Avodah Zarah 3.1 forbid Jews to make or possess. Now, Avodah Zarah is a section in the Talmud devoted to um, foreign practices that Jews are not allowed to do. Since the rabbis make a point of prohibiting the use of this image, an image of a goddess with some cool inscriptions and whatnot, there was clearly some use of that image going on in the Jewish community at the time, the time of the composition of that particular bit of the Talmud. So this is a piece of what you might call non-Jewish material found in our book that does actually get forbidden by the rabbis. But I should emphasize that most of the stuff, including the invocations of the planets, seems to have either traveled under the radar or simply been considered okay for Jews to do. And going forward into the Middle Ages, we shall see again and again a very strong tradition of monotheist astral practice, let's call it, that has been seen as perhaps borderline, perhaps forbidden, but also perhaps just fully concordant with the given Abrahamic faith, be it Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. So this is an early uh, example of that, of invoking planetary spirits for uh, practical purposes, but within a monotheist framework. Now let's turn to our esoteric lineage story with which this book begins. Let's quote here the introduction in Morgan's translation. This is a book from the Books of the Mysteries, which was given to Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, etc., etc., by Raziel the angel in the year when he came into the ark, but before his entrance. So, as an aside, this is antediluvian wisdom. Nice. Continuing with our quote. And Noah inscribed it upon a sapphire stone, distinctly. Another aside. Lovely, we get the mysterious sapphire inscription. This seems to be a theme in the Hermetica as well. And he learned from it how to do wondrous deeds. And he learned secrets of knowledge and categories of understanding and thoughts of humility and concepts of counsel, how to master the investigation of the strata of the heavens, to go about in all that is in their seven abodes, to observe all the astrological signs, to examine the course of the sun, to explain the observations of the moon, and to know the paths of the great bear Orion and the Pleiades, to declare the names of the overseers of each and every firmament and the realms of their authority, and by what means they can be made to cause success in each thing asked of them, and what are the names of their attendants, and what oblations are to be poured out to them, and what is the proper time at which they will hear prayers, so as to perform each wish of anyone who comes near them in purity. Okay, the quote goes on and tells us more of the stuff that Noah learned from this book, but we'll stop there. Now, this is a lot of learning for one book. The claim to an august lineage is something our listeners are very familiar with from esoteric texts and something particularly common in the Jewish and Christian realms. But before we proceed any further, note the references to what seems to be an awfully Hellenistic astronomical stroke astrological framework, quote, how to master the investigation of the strata of the heavens, to go about in all that is in their seven abodes. There's a bit of a seeming cosmic ascent material there. To observe all the astrological signs, to examine the course of the sun, to explain the observations of the moon, and to know the paths of the great bear Orion and the Pleiades, to declare the names and overseers of each, etc. This would seem to be a sign that we're going to be 
in the seven planetary heavens familiar to us from Hellenistic astronomy astrology with all that that entails. But no, gentle listener, the text with its seven firmaments, which follows this sort of introductory bit, gives us seven heavens typified by fiery angelic ranks and flaming pillars and stuff like that, but hardly a planet is to be found. Such planets as we do see are invoked via the agencies of various angels, so they, the planets occasionally appear in the spells, but they don't appear in the descriptions of the firmaments. So what kind of cosmology are we in in this book? We'll come back to that, but first let's finish our esoteric lineage. Quote, At the time of his death, Noah handed it down to Abraham, and Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, and Jacob to Levi, and Levi to Kohath, and Kohath to Amram, and Amram to Moses, and Moses to Joshua, and Joshua to the elders, and the elders to the prophets, and the prophets to the sages, and thus generation by generation, until Solomon the king arose. And the books of the mysteries were disclosed to him, and he became very learned in books of understanding, and so ruled over everything he desired, over all the spirits and the demons that wander in the world. And from the wisdom of this book, he imprisoned and released and sent out and brought in and built and prospered. For many books were handed down to him, but this one was found more precious and more honorable, etc., etc. End of quote. Now, Solomon is an interesting case, and he always seems to be associated, as here, with the ability to command spirits to do stuff, like build the Jerusalem temple, for example. So interesting and important is the figure of Solomon for magical traditions, to do with commanding angels, daimones, jinn, and other critters of the unseen, that we shall return to him in the next two episodes, when we shall discuss the fantastic magical novella, The Testament of Solomon, which comes from sometime between the 1st and 3rd centuries CE, and also try to get our bearings on this tradition of how a Bronze Age Jewish king becomes the founder of a whole genre of magic known as Solomonic magic. It's a long story and an interesting one. So join us for that. But for now, what about the seven heavens or firmament? We're now moving into the main body of our book. Now, the closest parallel to these firmaments as they're laid out is, as we mentioned, to the Hechelot literature. And we can also look to apocalyptic texts like the Ascension of Isaiah, which we covered in a special episode after episode 81 of the podcast. And we see a cosmos not too dissimilar in its general outlines, even though in all these texts, the exact names and divisions and ranks and so on of the angels tends to vary a lot. So is the cosmos outlined in the Sefer Harazim astral or not? I would say yes and no. Quoting Yarbrough Collins's fine work, Cosmology and Eschatology in Jewish and Christian Apocalypticism, quote, There is no clear indication in the early Jewish and Christian apocalyptic writings that there is any connection between the seven heavens and the seven planets. Such a connection first becomes visible in Hermetic texts, Mithraic monuments, and Celsus's discussion of Mithraic mysteries. The connection is clearly made under the influence of Greek astrology. The motif of seven heavens was probably borrowed from Babylonian tradition by Jewish apocalyptic writers. The reasons for adapting this motif probably included the magical properties of the number. The tradition of the Sabbath and the motif of the seven archangels may also have reinforced the choice of this motif. End of quote. Now, we are not, of course, in a strictly an apocalyptic work here, but we're 
as we've mentioned in a work that obviously has some things cosmologically in common with a lot of apocalypses. As we've mentioned, even the, um, the early Jewish Christian uh, Ascension of Isaiah, which is an apocalypse of great note, has an angelological cosmology quite reminiscent of the one laid out in the Sefer HaRazim. Now, the writer of the preface to this work, the Sefer HaRazim, can clearly be added to the list here of um, the Hermetic text, the Mithraic monuments, Celsus's description of Mithraic mysteries, in that he knows the seven spheres are planetary, he knows constellations, he's aware that the astral bodies need skilled intervention by the sage so as to cause magical effects. He is writing basically in something like a late antique astronomical, astrological, Hellenistic worldview, right? But the astral understanding doesn't seem to carry over into the main body of the text, where we're very much in the territory outlined by Yarbrough Collins as the apocalyptic type of uh, world. I suspect that the introductory wisdom lineage passage was penned by someone who had a much more astral understanding of the heavens than the author of the main text with its seven firmaments. And what we're looking at is a mashup of two different cosmological traditions, both of which conveniently center on the number seven, making the mashup possible. But I'm not a specialist here. This is just a suggestion. The astral framing and the framing of the Jewish prophets as skilled astrologers who know things like the astrological signs doesn't show up anywhere in the descriptions of the heavens and would seem to have been written by a Jewish author much more conversant with a kind of Hellenistic tradition of astral cosmology and also astral magic, while the main seven-fold sections of the work don't have much astral in them at all. So, yes and no. The preface of the book is astral. The main section of the book is not astral. But then, on the other hand, as we shall see, the magic involved is often quite planetary and often based on kairos. So, you don't just do a spell— you do it at a specific place, and often with a specific heavenly body, mostly the moon, visible in the sky. So again, the materials that the book is uh, incorporating are often from that more general Hellenistic astronomical astrological worldview. But let's turn to the firmaments and go through them one by one. For reasons of time, we won't be able to get too detailed, but we can talk about them a little bit. The first is called Shamayim. This is a the normal biblical Hebrew word for sky, basically. This place has seven thrones upon which sit wrathful angelic overlords, and each of these overlords has a whole troop of angels under his command, and there's a huge litany of their names. Quote, and all of them were created from fire, and their appearance is like fire, and their fire is blazing, for from fire they emerged. Now, each of those overlords has an encampment of angels, and each encampment can be invoked for various purposes, from healing to sinking a ship, smashing a fortified wall, or otherwise destroying your enemies. The uh, the third encampment allows for a divination ritual with a hieratic papyrus, and kind of like a, a sortilege type thing, not, not too dissimilar to the well-known magic eight ball, whereby you write a bunch of possible outcomes on papyrus, put them in this oil made from spikenard, whatever spikenard is, and then shake it around, and the one that one or ones that rise to the top are what's going to happen. But my personal favorite from the first heaven is this one. Um, so this is the first heaven or firmament fifth overseer. Say thus, I adjure you, O spirit of the ram bearer. This is a Hebrew 
transliteration of the Greek word Chrysphoros, which is an attribute of Hermes. So I adjure you, O spirit of Hermes, you who dwell among the graves upon the bones of the dead, that you will accept from my hand this offering and do my will and bring me the spirit of blank, son of blank, who is dead. So this is a necromantic ritual, looking seemingly to the planet Hermes, but looking to the planet as embodying Hermes in his psychopomp function, as, as the guy who goes between the land of the living and the dead. Great stuff. The second heaven, the heaven of heavens, is a place full of frost and fog and treasuries of snow and treasuries of hail, angels of fire and angels of moisture, of terror and spirits of dread. This place has a kind of celestial staircase in it with 12 steps, and each step has a bunch of angels on it. You can do a load of stuff with these angels. My personal favorite from this one is if you wish to nullify a great man's intentions towards you, or the thoughts of an army officer, or the intentions of military men, or any other evil intentions or thoughts directed against you, go out at midnight when the moon is full, barefoot and pure, and wrapped in new cloak. Stand under the moon and say twenty-one times the names of the angels written above, those who stand on the third step of the, he the heaven of heavens, and say, Moon, moon, O oh moon, bring my words before the angels who stand upon the third step, nullify the thought concerning me of blank son of blank, and the intention of his heart and his plot. Let his mouth be unable to speak against me, destroy his knowledge, and thwart his intentions, and let his purpose be devastated, so that every time he sees me, he will be filled with love for me, and let him be changed so that he becomes my friend, and let him not remember any hatred of me, and let me find favor and affection in his eyes. Then write the names of the angels, and these following twenty characteres, upon a silver lamella, put them on a tablet over your heart, and during all the days you wear it, you shall succeed. So note here the role of the moon, who has to be visible in the sky, but then is going to serve as a kind of mediator between you and the angels. Again, it's this uh, monotheist planetary invocation tradition in a very early attestation. It's wonderful stuff. Note also the kairos elements of the spell. And um, last but not least, note that this lovely bit of magic is very much geared toward survival in the late Roman Empire. So if you have an army officer or military men or, or others who do not like you, you don't have much recourse in the Dominate, and you're screwed. So what you want to do is get the moon to get the angels to make this person love you so they'll leave you alone. As often um, in late antique magic, we can see traces of the social situation of the practitioner trying to negotiate real life situations that you can get you can find yourself in in the late roman empire the third firmament quote is filled with storerooms of mist from which the winds go forth and inside it are encampments of thunder from which lightning emanates within three princes sit on their thrones they and their raiment have an appearance like fire and the appearance of their thrones is like fire fire that gleams like gold for they rule over all the angels of fire etc. The descriptions are fantastic, and uh, you can do a lot with these scary angels. Now, the fourth firmament is my personal favorite. Lots of angels, but there's two lots, angels of fire and of water. The angels of fire lead the sun by day, and the angels of water lead the sun by night. So 
the two main spells that you can do in this firmament are Helios magic, which are going to involve getting a vision of the god Helios or the physical sun itself or a bit of both. And once you've done that, being able to obtain oracular responses from the sun. So we're kind of, as I mentioned earlier, in a similar territory to the Mithras liturgy in that you need to get a vision of the sun, but then once you get it, you ask him for knowledge. In the spell to obtain a vision of the sun by day, you actually adjure the angels to make the sun shine less brightly so you can actually look at him. It's, it's very surreal and, and difficult to imagine how this would have worked. But once you've done that, you can, quote, ask him to foretell questions of death or life, good or evil. And if you wish to release him, repeat the adjuration and say, I adjure you that you return the radiance of the sun to its place as in the beginning. Then the sun will go on his way, end of quote. So this is viewing the sun in his day form. But you can also adjure the angels of the night sun, the water angels, similarly to put you into contact with the sun as he travels through the nightlands and uh, obtain oracular knowledge that way. The fifth firmament features crazy angels agogo. The sixth firmament also features crazy angels agogo. But this is interesting because this seems to be the dwelling place of the just dead. Quote, within is the place prepared for the spirits of the righteous, end of quote. So we are in afterlife territory here a feature of some second temple jews as we've seen in the podcast but not of all but now with the rabbinic age we are in a period when a pretty fixed feature of mainstream rabbinic judaism will be either an afterlife conceived of as one life on earth followed by eternal reward or punishment or a final repose and reward after many reincarnations model, both of which have strong proponents in the rabbinic tradition. So where you will end up if you are rewarded for a just life is in the sixth firmament, quite close to the seventh firmament, which is the divine throne room itself. As we mentioned earlier, the seventh firmament does not contain any magical spells, but long litany of praises of God drawing on loads of scripture and ends with Amen, Amen. Hallelujah. So that's the basic structure of the book, which happens to also to be the structure of the heavenly angelic realms. And let's turn back to the text and talk about what you can do with this book. As for the magical practices, we've already seen a reference to purification. This is often very much um, spelled out in terms of Jewish ritual purification, don't uh, touch a woman when she's menstruating, uh, do the special washing rituals, all that kind of stuff. Sometimes it's a little more elaborate, stay away from meat, stay away from wine, so more kind of ascetic practices to prepare for doing a ritual. There are all manner of ritual paraphernalia mentioned in this book for different spells, some of which like lamellae, glazed and unglazed pottery, uh, glass vessels, various incenses, and so on are relatively easy to obtain, while others, like rhinoceros horn or the blood and heart of a lion, are much more difficult to obtain and probably fanciful in some respects. Now, we mentioned charakteres. Now, charakteres is the term generally given in scholarship to those funny squiggly letters with the round bits on them. You can see an example in the 
illustration to this episode, which will have a very long life indeed in the magical literature of the Middle Ages going forward, but which were already probably being referred to by Porphyry and Iamblichus in their great debate about theurgy. Now, some of the manuscripts of the Sefer Harazim feature characteres, not all of them. Now, characteres in this period are common in both the Greek and Jewish worlds. We see them in some Greek magical papyri, and they seem to vary a lot from manuscript to manuscript. So there doesn't seem to be a common uh, character language, although these will develop in the medieval magical tradition and uh, will become very familiar uh, accoutrement of later occultist uh, appropriation of this, this grimoire tradition. But as of now, there's more than a thousand different characteres from antiquity known, so there doesn't seem to be any common uh, logic or common alphabet or anything like that. Now, that's some of the kind of accoutrement of magic that we find in this text. Listeners are warmly invited to check out the text for themselves because the specifics are wonderful. But what kind of stuff can you do with these angelic invocations? Well, Morgan, the translator that we've been quoting, gives a superb series of appendices at the end of his translation. And on pages 94 to 95, he gives us a wonderful list of, quote, purposes which angels can be made to serve. The kind of uh, appendix I wish every book on magic contained. And if we go to this appendix and kind of divide it up thematically, we come up with a few useful headings. So healing is one. You can just perform a general act of healing. You can heal a man who's had a stroke, drive away an evil spirit from a woman in childbirth, or cure a headache. All good practical stuff. We also have aggressive magic. Afflict an enemy in a general kind of way, give an enemy insomnia, and of course the more actually military ones, like the spell we mentioned earlier, which can destroy the walls of a fortified city, or sink a ship. There are divinatory magic rituals, some of which seem to shade over into what Korshi Dasu calls rituals of apparition. So you can predict the future, generally speaking. You can speak with the moon or stars, interpret dreams, view the sun during the day and ask it to foretell the future, or view the sun at night and ask it questions. Those which we mentioned earlier, sun-centered spells, to me seem like kind of a cross between divinatory magic and rituals of apparition, or partake of both themes. And lastly, you can know in which month you will die, or what will be in each and every month. So general knowledge plus specific knowledge of your death. We have love magic, of course. One can bind oneself to the heart of a great or wealthy woman, or put the love of a man into the heart of a woman, or arrange for a poor man to marry a rich woman. Now, both of those are love magic, but they would seem to impinge on the general negotiating of late antique Roman society as one of the lower classes theme of magic because both of them feature the wealth of the person <laughs> targeted by the magic as uh, part of the deal. And under that um, category of magical spells, which just rolls off the tongue, namely general negotiating of late antique Roman society as one of the lower classes magic, we can influence opinions in one's favor, catch and return a fugitive, that could be, for example, a slave that you own who's decided to do a runner, reverse a bad court decision, very important, 
should you be so unfortunate as to fall into the Roman legal system. Win at horse racing. That's the one that started off Margoliot's whole quest for this book and is just a general favorite of ancient uh, magic across the board. And restore to office one who has fallen from favor. So this is dealing with the vagaries of a government system based entirely or almost entirely on the whims of those in power. Last but not least, we have a bunch of other spells which we can classify under errata. You can question a ghost or spirit or make a love potion. That's a single spell. You can silence your enemies, nullify evil intentions, and then a few really juicy and wonderful ones. You can light an oven in the cold. This is a very useful thing, I suppose, back in the day before uh, people had mains gas. You can expel a dangerous animal or quell a rising river or sea. That's to be done with the little uh, goddess icon that we mentioned earlier, which is specifically forbidden by the rabbis. Protect a man going forth to battle. Extinguish a fire in a bathhouse. Give proof of power by filling a house with flame which does not burn. And upon returning safely from a war or journey, creating the appearance that a mighty company is with one. So these last two, giving proof of power by filling a house which flame which does not burn and making a kind of phantom uh, company of armed soldiers appear as you come back from battle, both partake of illusion, which is a, a wonderful aspect of ancient magic and modern magic. Now, that's the kind of stuff you can do with this wonderful book. And now let's turn to a little foretaste of the importance of this book. As we mentioned already, this book features in what you might call Kabbalist or esoteric Jewish anthologies throughout the Middle Ages, and I dare say still features on the curriculum of certain esoteric Jews to this day. But it also has a lot of kind of uh, interesting offshoots in the tradition. There is a Latin adaptation and expanded book of magic entitled Liber Razielis Angeli, Book of the Angel Raziel, which survives in the Leipzig Codex Latinus 745. This wasn't used in Margulliot's edition, though he did know of the text. And that book is something we shall be discussing in its proper place in the podcast, because this book, the book of the angel Raziel, is a very, very important Latin medieval grimoire, which in turn spawned loads of imitations and echoes going down into the grimoire tradition and the later magical tradition in the Latin West. We also have a book called Sefer Raziel Hamalach, Book of the Angel Raziel, in Hebrew, what you might call a grimoire of practical Kabbalah from the Middle Ages, um, written primarily in Hebrew and Aramaic. So this is another kind of spin-off, you might say, of what seems to have been roughly the origin of this tradition, the book we've been discussing. Now, we'll be getting back to all of those works of medieval magic as the podcast progresses, but right now I'd like to finish with a discussion of a recent uh, Razielek handbook showing that this tradition is alive and well. I refer, of course, to the book The Angels of the Seven Heavens, Practical Rituals with the Angels of Sefer HaRazim, Magic for Love, Protection, Prosperity, Destruction, by one Ars Aurora, a mysterious and magical uh, writer. Now, this is a self-published book. I shouldn't have read it because I seem to have cursed myself by obtaining it through other than 
uh, the legitimate means of going and buying it. But never mind, I'm going to assume that the curse doesn't actually function. Now, this is a book of angel magic presented in a kind of New Age, post-Crowleyan magical patois involving magic spelt with a K and terms like pathwork. And it's a kind of modern-day mashup of the Sefer HaRazim written by someone who doesn't seem to be a native English speaker, but is really into this stuff and wants to represent it for a modern, eclectic, uh, magical practitioner audience in the internet age. Now, we might uh, look at this and say, oh, this isn't authentic magic, this isn't the real tradition, but of course, as we know, the magical tradition already in antiquity is typified by this kind of textual remixing and mashups and rehashing and taking, for example, spells from a Greek milieu uh, transliterating them into Hebrew and sticking them into a seven firmament overarching thematic construction, rebranding them as Jewish. So this is precisely the sort of thing that has been going on in textual magical traditions since day one. And uh, for all that it is perhaps not as learned as the author of the original Sefer HaRazim is, nevertheless, I would argue represents a, a modern, uh, genuine outpouring of the tradition started by the anonymous scribe or scribes who originally compiled this book in late antiquity and then arguably carried further by the modern scholar Magoliot, whose work then, of course, was immediately reabsorbed into the magical practitioner tradition and gained a second or third or fourth life in the modern kind of marketplace of spirituality. Join us next time as we discuss the Testament of Solomon and the Solomonic tradition in a two-part episode, which, like this one, will have its roots firmly in Roman antiquity, but with its branches growing out in all manner of interesting directions into later magical and arguably mystical territory. And until then, be like the books of the mysteries, which were given to Noah by the angel Raziel, of which the Sefer HaRazim is only part, and stay esoteric. <laughs>